Section 9 of Chapter 20 of A History of England. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Bill McGovern. History of England by Thomas Babington Macaulay. Chapter 20. He had none of the external graces of an orator. His countenance was heavy, his figure mean and somewhat deformed, and his gestures uncouth. Yet he was heard with respect, for, such as his mind was, it had been assiduously cultivated. His youth had been studious, and to the last he continued to love books and the society of men of genius and learning. Indeed, he aspired to the character of a wit and a poet, and occasionally employed hours which should have been very differently spent in composing verses more execrable than the bellman's. His time, however, was not always so absurdly wasted. He had that sort of industry and that sort of exactness which would have made him a respectable antiquary or king-at-arms. His taste led him to plod among old records, and in that age it was only by plodding among old records that any man could obtain an accurate and extensive knowledge of the law of Parliament. Having few rivals in this laborious and unattractive pursuit, he soon began to be regarded as an oracle on questions of form and privilege. His moral character added not a little to his influence. He had, indeed, great vices, but they were not of a scandalous kind. He was not to be corrupted by money. His private life was regular. No illicit amour was imputed to him, even by satirists. Gambling he held an aversion, and it was said that he never passed whites, then the favorite haunt of noble sharpers and dupes, without an exclamation of anger. His practice of flustering himself daily with claret was hardly considered as a fault by his contemporaries. His knowledge, his gravity, and his independent position gained for him the ear of the house, and even his bad speaking was, in some sense, an advantage to him. For people are very loath to admit that the same man can unite very different kinds of excellence. It is soothing to envy to believe that what is splendid cannot be solid, that what is clear cannot be profound. Very slowly was the public brought to acknowledge that Mansfield was a great jurist, and that Burke was a great master of political science. Montague was a brilliant rhetorician, and therefore, though he had ten times Harley's capacity for the driest parts of business, was represented by detractors as a superficial, prating pretender. But from the absence of show in Harley's discourses, many people inferred that there must be much substance and he was pronounced to be a deep-read, deep-thinking gentleman, not a fine talker, but fitter to direct affairs of state than all the fine talkers in the world. This character he long supported with that cunning which is frequently found in company with ambitious and unquiet mediocrity. He constantly had, even with his best friends, an air of mystery and reserve, which seemed to indicate that he knew some momentous secret, and that his mind was laboring with some vast design. In this way he got, and long kept, a high reputation for wisdom. It was not till that reputation had made him an earl, 
a knight of the garter, lord high treasurer of England, and master of the fate of Europe, that his admirers began to find out that he was really a dull, puzzle-headed man. Soon after the general election of 1690, Harley, generally voting with the Tories, began to turn Tory. The change was so gradual as to be almost imperceptible, but was not the less real. He early began to hold the Tory doctrine that England ought to confine herself to a maritime war. He early felt the true Tory antipathy to Dutchmen and to moneyed men. The antipathy to dissenters, which was necessary to the completeness of the character, came much later. At length the transformation was complete, and the old haunter of conventicles became an intolerant high churchman. Yet to the last the traces of his early breeding would now and then show themselves, and, while he acted after the fashion of Laud, he sometimes wrote in the style of Praise God Barebones. Of Paul Foley we know comparatively little. His history up to a certain point greatly resembles that of Harley, but he appears to have been superior to Harley, both in parts and in elevation of character. He was the son of Thomas Foley, a new man, but a man of great merit, who, having begun life with nothing, had created a noble estate by ironworks, and who was renowned for his spotless integrity and his munificent charity. The Foleys were, like their neighbors the Harleys, Whigs and Puritans, Thomas Foley lived on terms of close intimacy with Baxter, in whose writings he is mentioned with warm eulogy. The opinions and the attachments of Paul Foley were at first those of his family. But he, like Harley, became, merely from the vehemence of his Whiggism, an ally of the Tories, and might perhaps, like Harley, have been completely metamorphosed into a Tory if the process of transmutation had not been interrupted by death. Foley's abilities were highly respectable, and had been improved by education. He was so wealthy that it was unnecessary for him to follow the law as a profession, but he had studied it carefully as a science. His morals were without stain, and the greatest fault which could be imputed to him was that he paraded his independence and disinterestedness too ostentatiously, and was so much afraid of being thought to fawn that he was always growling. Another convert ought to be mentioned. Howe, lately the most virulent of the Whigs, had been, by the laws of his place, turned into one of the most virulent of the Tories. The deserter brought to the party which he had joined no weight of character, no capacity or semblance of capacity for great affairs, but much parliamentary ability of a low kind much spite and much impudence. No speaker of that time seems to have had, in such large measure, both the power and inclination to give pain. The assistance of these men was most welcome to the Tory party, but it was impossible that they could, as yet, exercise over that party the entire authority of the leaders, for they still called themselves Whigs, and generally vindicated their Tory votes by arguments grounded on Whig principles. From this view of the state of parties in the House of Commons, it seems clear that Sunderland had good reason for recommending that the administration should be entrusted to the Whigs. The King, however, hesitated long 
before he could bring himself to quit that neutral position which he had long occupied between the contending parties. If one of those parties was disposed to question his title, the other was on principle hostile to his prerogative. He still remembered with bitterness the unreasonable and vindictive conduct of the Convention Parliament at the close of 1689 and the beginning of 1690. He shrank from the thought of being entirely in the hands of men who had obstructed the Bill of Indemnity, who had voted for the Sacreveral Clause, and who had tried to prevent him from taking the command of his army in Ireland, and who had called him an ungrateful tyrant, merely because he would not be their slave and their hangman. He had once, by a bold and unexpected effort, freed himself from their yoke, and he was not inclined to put it on his neck again. He personally disliked Wharton and Russell. He thought highly of the capacity of Caermarthen, of the integrity of Nottingham, of the diligence and financial skill of Godolphin. It was only by slow degrees that the arguments of Sunderland, backed by the force of circumstances, overcame all objections. On the 7th of November, 1693, the Parliament met, and the conflict of parties instantly began. William from the throne pressed on the houses the necessity of making a great exertion to arrest the progress of France on the continent. During the last campaign, he said, she had on every point had a superiority of force, and it had therefore been found impossible to cope with her. His allies had promised to increase their armies, and he trusted that the commons would enable him to do the same. The commons at their next sitting took the king's speech into consideration. The miscarriage of the Smyrna fleet was the chief subject of discussion. The cry for inquiry was universal, but it was evident that the two parties raised that cry for very different reasons. Montague spoke the sense of the Whigs. He had declared that the disasters of the summer could not, in his opinion, be explained by the ignorance and imbecility of those who had charge of the naval administration. There must have been treason. It was impossible to believe that Lewis, when he sent his breast squadron to the Straits of Gibraltar and left the whole coast of his kingdom from Dunkirk to Bayonne unprotected, had trusted merely to chance. He must have been well assured that his fleet would meet with a vast booty under a feeble convoy. As there had been treachery in some quarters, there had been incapacity in others. The state was ill-served, and then the orator pronounced a warm panegyric on his friend Summers. Would that all men in power would follow the example of my Lord Keeper. If all patronage were bestowed as judiciously and disinterestedly as his, we should not see the public offices filled with men who draw salaries and perform no duties. It was moved and carried unanimously that the commons would support their majesties and would forthwith proceed to investigate the cause of the disaster of the Bay of Lagos. The lords of the admiralty were directed to produce a great mass of documentary evidence. The king sent down copies of the examinations taken before the committee of council, which Mary had appointed to inquire into the grievances of the Turkey merchants. The Turkey merchants themselves were called in and interrogated. Rook, though too ill to stand or speak, 
was brought in a chair to the bar, and there delivered a narrative of his proceedings. The Whigs soon thought that sufficient ground had been laid for a vote condemning the naval administration, and moved a resolution attributing the miscarriage of the Smyrna fleet to notorious and treacherous mismanagement. That there had been mismanagement could not be disputed, but that there had been foul play had certainly not been proved. The Tories proposed that the word treacherous should be omitted. A division took place, and the Whigs carried their point by a hundred and forty votes to a hundred and three. Horton was a teller for the majority. It was now decided that there had been treason, but not who was the traitor. Several keen debates followed. The Whigs tried to throw the blame on Killigrew and Delabal, who were Tories. The Tories did their best to make out that the fault lay with the victualling department, which was under the direction of Whigs. But the House of Commons has always been much more ready to pass votes of censure drawn in general terms than to brand individuals by name. A resolution clearing the victualling office was proposed by Montague, and carried, after a debate of two days, by a hundred and eighty-eight votes to a hundred and fifty-two. But when the victorious party brought forward a motion inculpating the admirals, the Tories came up in great numbers from the country, and after a debate which lasted from nine in the morning till near eleven at night, succeeded in saving their friends. The noes were a hundred and seventy, and the eyes only a hundred and sixty-one. Another attack was made a few days later, with no better success. The noes were a hundred and eighty-five, the eyes only a hundred and seventy-five. The indefatigable and implacable Wharton was on both occasions teller for the minority. In spite of this check, the advantage was decidedly with the Whigs. The Tories who were at the head of the naval administration had indeed escaped impeachment, but the escape had been so narrow that it was impossible for the king to employ them any longer. The advice of Sunderland prevailed. A new commission of admiralty was prepared, and Russell was named First Lord. He had already been appointed to command of the Channel Fleet. His elevation made it necessary that Nottingham should retire, for, though it was not then unusual to see men who were personally and politically hostile to each other holding high offices at the same time, the relation between the First Lord of the Admiralty and the Secretary of State who had charge of what would now be called the War Department, was of so peculiar a nature that the public service could not well be conducted without cordial cooperation between them. And between Nottingham and Russell, such cooperation was not to be expected. I thank you, William said to Nottingham, for your services. I have nothing to complain of in your conduct. It is only from necessity that I part with you. Nottingham retired with dignity. Though a very honest man, he went out of office much richer than he had come in five years before. What were then considered as the legitimate emoluments of his place were great. He had sold Kensington House to the Crown for a large sum, and he had probably, after the fashion of that time, obtained for himself some lucrative grants. He laid out all his gains in purchasing land. He heard, he said, that his enemies meant to accuse him of having acquired wealth by illicit means. He was perfectly ready to abide the issue of an inquiry. 
he would not, as some ministers had done, place his fortune beyond the reach of the justice of his country. He would have no secret hoard. He would invest nothing in foreign funds. His property should all be such as could be readily discovered and seized. During some weeks the seals which Nottingham had delivered up remained in the royal closet. To dispose of them proved no easy matter. They were offered to Shrewsbury, who of all the Whig leaders stood highest in the king's favor. But Shrewsbury excused himself, and, in order to avoid further importunity, retired into the country. There he soon received a pressing letter from Elizabeth Villiers. This lady had, when a girl, inspired William with a passion which had caused much scandal and much unhappiness in the little court of the Hague. Her influence over him she owed not to her personal charms, for it tasked all the art of Kneller to make her look tolerably on canvas, not to those talents which peculiarly belonged to her sex, for she did not excel in playful talk, and her letters are remarkably deficient in feminine ease and grace, but to powers of mind which qualified her to partake the cares and guide the counsels of statesmen. To the end of her life, great politicians sought her advice. Even Swift, the shrewdest and most cynical of her contemporaries, pronounced her the wisest of women, and more than once sat, fascinated by her conversation, from two in the afternoon till near midnight. By degrees the virtues and charms of Mary conquered the first place in her husband's affection. But he still, in difficult conjunctures, frequently applied to Elizabeth Villiers for advice and assistance. She now implored Shrewsbury to reconsider his determination, and not to throw away the opportunity of uniting the Whig party forever. Warden and Russell wrote to the same effect. In reply came flimsy and unmeaning excuses. I am not qualified for a court life. I am unequal to a place which requires much exertion. I do not quite agree with any party in the state. In short, I am unfit for the world. I want to travel. I want to see Spain. These were mere pretenses. Had Shrewsbury spoken the whole truth, he would have said that he had, in an evil hour, been false to the cause of that revolution in which he had borne so great a part and that he had entered into engagements of which he repented, but of which he knew not how to extricate himself, and that, while he remained under those engagements, he was unwilling to enter into the service of the existing government. Marlborough, Godolphin, and Russell, indeed, had no scruple about corresponding with one king while holding office under the other. But Shrewsbury had what was wanting in Marlborough, Godolphin, and Russell, a conscience, a conscience which indeed too often failed to restrain him from doing wrong, but which never failed to punish him. In consequence of his refusal to accept the seals, the ministerial arrangements which the king had planned were not carried into entire effect till the end of the session. Meanwhile the proceedings of the two houses had been highly interesting and important. Soon after the Parliament met, the attention of the Commons was again called to the state of the trade with India, and the charter which had just been granted to the old company was laid before them. They would probably have been disposed to sanction the new arrangement, 
which in truth differed little from that which they had themselves suggested not many months before, if the directors had acted with prudence. But the directors, from the day on which they had obtained their charter, had persecuted the interlopers without mercy, and had quite forgotten that it was one thing to persecute interlopers on the eastern seas, and another to persecute them in the port of London. Hitherto the war of the monopolists against the private trade had been generally carried on at a distance of fifteen thousand miles from England. If harsh things were done, the English did not see them done, and did not hear of them till long after they had been done. Nor was it by any means easy to ascertain at Westminster who had been right and who had been wrong in a dispute which had arisen three or four years before at Morshebedad or Canton. With incredible rashness, the directors determined, at the very moment when the fate of the company was in the balance, to give the people of this country a near view of the most odious features of the monopoly. Some wealthy merchants of London had equipped a fine ship named the Red Bridge. Her crew was numerous, her cargo of immense value. Her papers had been made out for Alicant, but there was some reason to suspect that she was really bound for the countries lying beyond the Cape of Good Hope. She was stopped by the Admiralty in obedience to an order which the company obtained from the Privy Council, doubtless by the help of the Lord President. Every day that she lay at the Thames caused a heavy expense to the owners. The indignation in the city was great and general. The company maintained that from the legality of the monopoly, the legality of the detention necessarily followed. The public turned the argument around, and being firmly convinced that the detention was illegal, drew the inference that the monopoly must be illegal too. The dispute was at the height when the Parliament met. Petitions on both sides were speedily laid on the table of the Commons, and it was resolved that these petitions should be taken into consideration by a committee of the whole House. The first question on which the conflicting parties tried their strength was the choice of a chairman. The enemies of the old company proposed Papillon, once the closest ally and subsequently the keenest opponent of child, and carried their point by a hundred and thirty-eight votes to a hundred and six. The committee proceeded to inquire by what authority the Red Bridge had been stopped. One of her owners, Gilbert Heathcote, a rich merchant and a staunch Whig, appeared at the bar as a witness. He was asked whether he would venture to deny that the ship had really been fitted out for the Indian trade. It is no sin that I know of, he answered, to trade with India, and I shall trade with India till I am restrained by an act of Parliament. Papillon reported that in the opinion of the committee the detention of the Red Bridge was illegal. The question was then put that the House would agree with the committee. The friends of the old company ventured on a second division and were defeated by 171 votes to 125. End of section 9